you're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Gene Young, founder of Akita Software and a former academic researcher of programming languages as a PhD computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University. We talk about her experiences in academia and in industry as a startup founder, how different programmers think about guarantees, or lack thereof, in chaotic production systems, and the dramatically different workflows that different programmers can pursue when working on different projects. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, embracing the chaos. All right, Jean, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I wanted to ask you, because I know that you come from a background in like programming language research, and you have recently started a startup. And so now you're sort of in industry doing application development, among other things. And, and I sort of like uh, started out doing an in industry doing application development, and I'm now working on a programming language. And um, I think it's interesting that our, our paths have sort of gone the opposite directions in some sense in that way, although I don't have any plans to go into academia, to be fair. But I wanted to ask you, how has your experience and background doing programming language research come up for you, if at all, in industry? Because I have some guesses based on what your product is, but I've always wondered. <laughs> That's a great question. And I would say I'm, well, as we as we talked about offline, not all industry is the same. And so the fact that I'm building a developer tool for my startup is uh, <laughs> it's a very specific thing. And it's very uh, directly influenced by the ideas and conclusions I came to when I was in academic programming languages researcher. So I'll set some context here because I, I think a lot of people hear about programming languages research and they're like, okay, so do you research Python or C++ or which language do you research? And I have to be like, no, no, you know. Um, and so I came up with this analogy, which is if you're a programming languages researcher, it's like being a high fashion designer. You're not actually designing clothes for people to wear. You're like pushing the boundaries of art. Well, I don't know very much about high fashion. So I could be totally making this up. But um, how, how I understand high fashion is you have these very tall, skinny, like abnormally proportioned people walking around with birds on their head, um, really pushing the boundaries of what are clothes. And um, a mortal human being like me would never wear those clothes. Like maybe like someone sees something and then like, you know, a lot later that that influences the actual clothes I wear or something like that. And so I, I feel like in programming languages research, you're really just playing in this playground of ideas where you're not really bound to gravity or practicality or many other things. And um, you get a pretty good understanding of a toolbox of concepts and things that could exist in the real world if someone chose to make them exist. And so I, I feel like what I'm doing now very much draws from that, if that makes sense. In doing that and thinking about how do some of the ideas that I'm working on relate to the real world, um, that's how I came up with what we generally should do at at Akita, my company. Here's what I mean by that. So I spent many years first as a PhD student, then as a professor thinking about how do we make guarantees hold across programs? That was really the premise. And um, specifically, although this is not relevant to anything we're doing at my company, I was doing information flow control and access uh, guarantees. So who can see what in a system? And this is like between two running, separate running programs, like separate processes. Well, so in my case, it was between different data values 
values in a single program, but this is a good question because this is where um, the cracks in my reality started to hold. Because a lot of the research in my field was dealing with um, lambda calculus models. So that that's really like, you know, functions in a single application. But every time I tried to implement prototypes or anything of what I was doing, it would be on uh, quote unquote real programs. So first I implemented what I did um, as an embedded domain specific language in Scala and then built like a little Scala. I forget what Java um, web framework I used, but you know, I, I built a little web app out of it. And then I, I was like, holy crap, you know, when you build a real program, there's, it's not one Lambda, like not, not one like Lambda based function anymore. There's a lot of stuff going on, right? There's, there's your database, there's your front end, you, you have your whole model view controller. And as you alluded to, that, that, that was only one process. Like what happens if you have multiple running programs that are trying to talk to each other or even a single running program trying to access the database multiple times, what happens when you go outside of your program and you have data that's unprotected? And so what I was starting to realize was, I mean, it's cool and all that we're working on on these guarantees, but like, how do they ever, ever, ever hold on real world programs these days? So what was in my thinking at the time was, how do any language level guarantees hold when you write out to databases, when you talk to front ends, when you call out to any APIs, which, you know, this was on the rise in the time I was in grad school in the 2010s and before that too, but we won't talk about that part. <laughs> this is really, uh, really aging me now. And then um, this was, you know, this coincided with the rise of service oriented architectures and microservices. And so in the programming languages community, we had talked about language heterogeneity and foreign function calls and things like that. But network calls are like black box, foreign function, like unknown, like massive heterogeneity to the next level. And so I came from like the world of software verification. How do we prove programs are correct? There's this like star that you put if you have to call out to something you don't know. And to me, you know, that's just like a random arbitrary symbol, but it's like the, like the star of death. That's the notation like in a paper or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like I'm thinking about these microservices programs and I'm just like stars everywhere and you don't know anything. It's very, very bad. And so um, that deeply influenced my decision to start a company based on um, looking at runtime traffic. And I, I think, you know, I never let go of the idea that imposing principles and structure onto computation was a good idea. And so, um, you know, that that's very much a thread in what we're doing now. But um, but the main idea is it's we're, we're imposing structure on the actual behavior rather than imposing or imposing structure on the behavior backwards, if, if that makes sense, rather than doing it forwards from the program itself. Right. I, I saw a talk of yours where, and you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but um, where like w one of the features you have is the ability to look at your traffic and to sort of infer like a JSON schema of like, okay, this is actually what your API looks like in practice. That's really cool. And and this is actually where my, my original question came from is I want like, cause that to me sounds like type inference. Yeah. It's very Similar to type inference, and there's a bunch of work in programming languages and program analysis that was about invariant inference, um, invariant mining, also mining large amounts of trace data for properties like API structure, API calls. So my PhD advisor um, had a 
major multi-paper project that was using, I think it was machine learning on large amounts of API calls to infer how to make API calls. His PhD advisor had um, a series of papers on a topic called jungleoid mining that was uh, similar about like how to infer like API patterns and API structures from data. So this was very much my, uh, my academic lineage as well. So small tangent here, this actually gets into, in my mind, I think part of the explanation for how microservices as a concept got popular is I've been wondering this because the problem you described about like, you know, as soon as you've got multiple services talking to another over the network, it's just a black box and anything could go wrong. None of your guarantees are going to hold. Whereas if you have at least one program coming from one code base, you can be like, okay, this is the types of these values that are going between these functions. When I've worked in like type checked languages, I really appreciate that. Like, you know, if I'm writing Elm code, I'm writing Haskell code, I'm writing even Java code, whatever, uh, Rust code, just, you know, whenever I'm making a refactor or something like that, I'm changing the code around. I, once the type checker passes, I know things about my code that I didn't know before. Whereas when I'm going over the network, I'm like, well, hopefully it's got this shape, but if it doesn't, I have a whole conditional pathway that has to deal with that. And what I was thinking about is like, obviously, if I split this up into two services, I now am losing that. Like, I, I have to now have these conditionals that, that might blow up. Why are people so quick to do that? Like, that's a, that's a huge downside. Why wh- why are people like trivializing that downside? And I have a theory, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. I would be really curious to hear your theory, but I have my uh, tenets of observation <laughs> about people. Um, the first is I don't think people actually appreciate types that much. I mean, I too love types. I wish I could be programming in, in invariants all day long, actually. I, I think it's the way to go. But if you look at what's popular, types did not become popular until type inference became really, really good. Like if you look at web languages, you know, PHP, Python, all of them got types added after the fact. And um, I think it's not just a personal preference thing. I think it's a practicality thing because I think um, types are really good if you're programming in a top-down way. But I, I've come to realize that a lot of programming is actually more like archaeology or some kind of science. And I, I first started realizing this um, when I, I was working um, for a while with the Julia team, the team behind the Julia programming language. They were talking about their pretty simple type system and how a lot of you know formal languages people were angry with them because their types are, I think they were calling them dynamically checked dependent types. And people are like, why would you not just check them statically, blah, 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 blah. But their types are like, like actually quite detailed. Like they talk about the numerical structure of matrices and things like that. And um, what they told me was a lot of the time when you're working with scientific data, like you don't know what you're going to do with the data and you don't know the shape of the data until you start poking around. And so there's, there's more of like a scientific investigative approach. Like you really can't do it top down. And what I've come to realize about a lot of web programming is like maybe in part because it started out like an untyped pile of code going over the network, which is not not typed. Working with web code is very similar. You're like, if you don't control the environment you live in and you're forced to be in constant interaction with it, you cannot do top-down programming. And types are really good for top-down programming. And so I'm I think my like glib way of characterizing it is people don't like types, but I, I think that, you know, there's there's logical good reasons for why this is happening. So I, I think one, like types have gone out the window. And then two, I think there are some, well, there's like, and, and maybe this is the incorrect way of thinking about why people adopt microservices and maybe this is uncharitable. 
but um, I guess bluntly uncharitable impression is that people think that if you decentralize your technical architecture, you don't have to talk to each other anymore, but it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think, I think there's a real appeal and like, oh, well, like normally if like, you know, Richard and I were working on a project together and we had to work on one service. We have to do all this talking. Well, let's just split up into two services. But I think the thing that is not accounted for is now we have to do more talking because now our services have to work together. But I like based on what I've seen, I think this is like a failure mode, but a very, very common failure mode where people like buy into the decentralized myth, but don't realize this just push like kicks the talking can down the road and someone still has to do talking. This is like my interpretation of what happens with a lot of decentralized technology adoption. I totally agree. And I also think there's a separate like thing that I, I have heard about happening, which is like one thing that that you don't necessarily have to Okay, so there's, there's a difference between um, talking and agreeing. So when it comes to talking, yeah, I totally agree. But I, I can see a benefit in terms of agreeing where one team is like, I really want to use Python. And the other team's like, I really want to use Ruby. And so they go, they say, you know what? I'm just going to go off into my cave and I'm going to go off into my cave and I'm going to use Python and I'm going to use Ruby. And they're like, fine, we both get what we want. Well, that is until you have turnover. And now you're like, oh, we need to hire like only Python developers for this team and only Ruby developers for this team. And if like somebody leaves, you can't just be like, well, let's just, you know, shift some teams around and have people move on to different teams because maybe they're not familiar with a totally different stack. That's another failure mode that can happen. And next thing you know, you have 12 services because each person on the team has split their service into a subservice based on the endpoints they're responsible for. It's like one problem you can have is that the decentralization doesn't work. And another problem you can have is that the decentralization does work. Both of those are potential downsides in different ways. Yeah. Well, decentralization only can be called working if you can coordinate it together, which I think a lot of people seem to be struggling with at the moment. So the reason I picked Python and Ruby as the examples there is that like the web has a, a big history of like, you know, like the LAMP stack, right? That's Linux, Apache, MySQL, and then the P was overloaded to be PHP, Perl, or Python. And then like Ruby joined that group later. There's a lot of dynamic typing in the history of how the web came up, especially like Perl being the biggest one at first and then these other languages kind of coming along long like scripting languages. And if you're working in that environment, you're already not checking it. You don't have any guarantees. So you're not really giving anything up if you're going to like microservices. Like what's the difference between a network call and a call to a function? Like they both might crash or misbehave in any number of different ways. You're just, you're kind of taking it on faith that they won't. And if you're already doing that, then, you know, you're not really giving that much up compared to like something that you or I might prefer. If, if we're like, oh, I have all these nice guarantees, I'm giving them up. You know, that's a different feeling. And even the, the statically typed languages, like you were saying, you know, type inference getting bigger, I think is definitely a part of the story. But I think another thing worth noting is that the languages that have had good type inference have had another thing that languages coming before them have not had, which is the ability to, I'm going to use the term null check, but basically to be able to actually rule out null pointer exceptions or, or null you know, dereferences, which I remember from my time, I was at the beginning of my career, an enterprise Java developer. I always just felt like my code crashes all the time. And it's usually, it's a runtime exception. And it's, and it's most often, like by far, like a null pointer exception because that's just how all the APIs were designed. But now you get you know, languages like Haskell and Elm and, and Scala to some extent that are sort of like culturally moving away from that and being like, actually, let's you know, wrap our optional things so that you like, can't forget to deal with them. And like Rust is the same way now. And as we've been seeing dynamically typed languages obtain static type checkers after the fact, they're all like including some sort of null handling capability in them. And I think that's a big deal towards sort of getting the experience of like, oh, I changed my code and it actually still works because 
you know, the, the type checker said it would. I think those are really good points. I'll also just point out when um it's it's interesting because when I when I said that type inference has gotten better, I really meant that um the people inferring like TypeScript types and typed PHP and typed Python um and languages that weren't built with the types because something I've been noticing is that if you look at these um statically like static types for dynamically typed languages, people didn't adopt the static type systems until the the type inference got better. And the control is that maybe that's not the right word, but you know people were still using those languages without types for for a long time. But yeah, there's just, you know, a whole, whole large um, amount of working programmers that were not using types at all or static types at all before the inference got good enough. Yeah, I'm surprised. I I know there's this sort of like meme that I've seen and like, uh, it's a very niche meme, but it's like... uh, once you get into any amount of compiler development, you just see compilers everywhere. It's like every every problem is it can be solved by a compiler of some sort, um, which you know is not literally true. But I'm reminded of this by the problem that you're uh, working on solving, which is like people don't. I remember seeing you in a couple of talks. You mentioned that like you would go and talk to companies, and they would talk about what do you mean guarantees? We don't even know what our API actually does or like what the shape of the data coming in or going out is. We're just kind of like, you know, we, we often get it wrong and, and it's just kind of like surprising to us. That's the world people are living in. There are ways to bring principled, structured reasoning to that too, but it's, it just comes in a very different form. That's really interesting to me because of, this is something that I keep uh, kind of like coming back to, but so the origin of the term object-oriented programming came from Alan Kay. And his vision was basically, I think he said the the essence of recursive design, which I'm not sure why that's innately a good thing, but let's go with it, is that the individual parts are as powerful as the whole. And so the idea was that like to think about objects as tiny servers. And it's like your whole program is built out of servers that talk to one another. So that was like the, the small talk model. And I don't see how like knowing what we do now, that seems like a good pitch in the sense that like, I mean, you're going to have the same problem. Like everything, every object is a black box in, in this like, you know, message passing sort of, uh, you know, between objects uh, model and you're sending out messages, but that's it's the same characteristic as what you're saying with network requests and APIs, where if you don't have some sort of computer assistance for figuring out what the shapes of the, of the APIs are, you're just going to, you know, sort of find out what the APIs are the hard way. I mean, there are ways you can deal with that and just be really defensive about everything and say like, well, I, I don't know what I could possibly be getting. So I'm just going to work really hard to try and do something reasonable with whatever stuff I get. But that's a lot of extra work. <laughs> I mean, it makes type checking look like a total joke in terms of uh, amount of effort. Yeah, fun side note, my senior thesis in undergrad was about using Haskell type classes with type dynamic. And so I don't know how much you know about Haskell, but like you don't. I don't know about type dynamic. I know about type classes, but. Type dynamic is, could be any type. It's basically if you call across the network, things have to get wrapped in type dynamic in Haskell. Like it's, it's like a type unknown, basically. But you can't use type classes with it because obviously like it doesn't have, like you don't have a static type associated with type dynamic. And so my whole project there was like, oh, oh, well, if you can statically collect all of the instances of every type class, then you can check against them. <laughs> Which reminds me of, of what you said about like programming very defensively. Because yeah, like that's, you basically have to compile like very defensive programming to, to make this usable at all. And, and yeah, so I, I completely agree. I think that like zooming out, my general view on all of this is I feel like 
up until pretty recently, programming has been thought of in a very top-down, like we can catalog the world kind of way. And that's just not how the world works. And so there are two other like major areas of life where people have tried to do this and then they've embraced chaos. And then now the general practice is chaos. And so one is philosophy. So I don't know very much about philosophy, but I had to read a bunch of it in school. And so like, here's all I know. Aristotle was very early on and he tried to categorize like every animal and insect and like plant. And now everyone laughs at that and they're like, ha ha, look at Aristotle, so primitive. And then the more modern philosophers are just like, the world is unknowable, uncategorizable. All we can have is a few rules for operating and living in this world. And so (laughs) that's like basically what I took, I took away from grade school. And then, um, like the next set of things is is like AI and machine learning things. And so if you look at like natural language processing, for instance, they started out being like, we're going to use Lambda functions to characterize every sentence in every language in all languages. And now it's like computational linguistics is all statistical. It's all like correlations and like more generally for AI. Like again, they also use Lambda functions to characterize everything. And now it's like all neural nets. And I feel like programming languages is like the last, like, like the only thing remaining <laughs> where people are like, we're going to define everything, like every stick and stone or or not, not all people, but I I think we're starting to move towards a more statistical model of life. Like we see it with GitHub Copilot. We see it with, I I think a, a lot of the like newer program analyses, even in like programming languages research are very statistical. But yeah, I think that like programming languages, like loosely as a discipline seems to like be one of the last ones to still hold on to like the, the Aristotle view of, of the world. And I, I, I really think that's going to change, but it doesn't mean like you can't have frameworks. Doesn't mean you can't have logic. Doesn't mean you can't have like philosophies, but I think things are going to move to be a lot more statistical. Yeah. That's a really interesting idea. I'd never thought about this statistical angle to it. I do observe like an interesting trend in language design and like, I don't know how languages are evolving, which is we definitely, so on the one hand, you could argue that like, yes, there is like a lot more, okay, weird stuff's going to happen at runtime. So, you know, we, we can't try to specify everything up front. And certainly like, you know, from a software development methodology perspective, like that's kind of what agile was all about. They're like, don't do a big design up front because it's, you know, things are too unpredictable for that. But at the same time, it's also true that a very recent development is that all of these dynamically typed languages are getting static type checkers and they're becoming popular, which arguably is a move in the other direction, like away from the like, you know, chaotic anything goes towards the more like structured. But I do think an important difference there is the type inference that you alluded to, which is that there's a path to saying I can write in a style where it is sort of chaotic. I'm not really taking all these things into account. I'm not trying to plan for everything, but I can retroactively impose more structure on it after that becomes something that I want. And I'm also completely not versed at all in philosophy, but one thing that strikes me about the two philosophical oh, yeah, examples that you gave. took like one <laughs> class junior year of high school. <laughs> well, let's assume that's 100% correct because I also don't know anything about fashion and your earlier comment about that made a lot of sense to me. So <laughs> let's just go with analogies that we're you know, not experts in. Because really, like, can we really call ourselves programmers if we're not reaching into other industries and just assuming we know everything about them? So like, assuming the high level you know, philosophy thing is correct, which maybe it's not. So you have on the one hand, like a philosophy that's like, let's impose order on everything. And that's the goal. And then another one that says, let's impose order on nothing. Everything's chaos. And, you know, that's almost sounds kind of nihilistic. It's like, you know, everything's meaningless because, you know, you can't 
you, you just embrace the chaos and there's no hope for like having any structure. But both of those, like, you know, to me as someone who's not into philosophy, I've always thought of philosophy as something that's ideally supposed to help you figure out how to navigate life. And neither of those are particularly helpful, you know, towards that end. Like if there, if there is a practical goal to philosophy, which maybe there's not supposed to be, but let's suppose that there is, hopefully it's, it's helping you, you know, make decisions about how you want to lead your life. And the let's categorize everything approach doesn't seem to be that helpful because, well, it's unsuccessful at categorizing everything. So it, it can't like, you know, work in that way. And then the chaos one is like, well, it just has nothing to say. It's like, yeah, everything's chaos. So do whatever you want. That's, that's also not helpful for making decisions. So I hesitate to say, oh, there's there's a there's a nice middle ground to find, but maybe it's more that there's nuance and like you know, yes, we can usefully categorize some things. Like, okay, this category of things is like we're going to call it morally right and morally wrong. It's like ah, but what about this edge case? And it's like okay, look, we don't have to get it exactly right. Like broad strokes, like it's helpful to have this broad categorization instead of you know nothing at all. Yeah, I think the more popular modern philosophers just give you frameworks. They're like, all right, here's some like basic rules and just apply them where you can. Um, it's more like in between. And I feel like, you know, the where programming tools are headed is like, that's where we want to get like practical, progressive programming languages that work for your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is something that we've been working on in Rock is um, like, so a lot of gradually typed, you know, is the term I've heard, uh, like languages that started out as dynamic and then got a type checker after the fact. One of the things that I, I like about them, although I'm actually constantly surprised when I talk to people uh, about them, and it seems like this is not how they're often being used in practice, which is strange to me, but I used to do professionally like statically typed languages and I did dynamically typed languages. And now I'm doing a whole different category of statically typed languages. But one thing that I missed, in fact, one of the very few things that I missed moving from dynamic back to static was the experience of writing tests. And in particular, the thing that I miss is the ability to run your tests when your whole program doesn't type check yet. There's this like incremental workflow where it's like, oh, I want to just like, or, or even just like try out part of my program. Yeah, this is the experimental programming um, thing that I was talking about earlier. I think a lot of programming tools are not set up for this experimental phase. And um, I think if you're writing a program for the second time, or if you know exactly what you're writing, or like you're not doing true prototyping, like types are great. It's kind of like, I think asking people to use types right up front is like asking them to, you know, like uh, I'm going to make another analogy for an area I don't know, but like, Work directly in drywall instead of that cardboard architects model thing. I have found though that like sometimes I want to do one and sometimes I want to do the other depending on what the problem is. Yeah, some problems you know how to solve and some you have to poke at. Even within the same code base, like sometimes I'm actually looking at it as like, in fact, honestly, more often than not, now that I'm working in types more, it's more often than not what I'm trying to figure out is like, what's the data structure that really accurately models this problem? And then the implementation is kind of going to fall out of that. But still quite often, it's the other way around. Like if I'm doing something algorithmic, it's like, well, the, the algorithm often doesn't fall out of the data structure if it's like kind of a tricky thing with a lot of conditionals in it. I personally actually, for um, uh, when I was getting started, I was really into using strong static type checking because I was like, oh, this is great. I'm, you know, saving myself from so many errors. But then um, I started getting into like much more experimental prototyping. I started getting into like, you know, using reflection on the language structure itself. And I also like... <laughs> 
<laughs> to sound like a real cocky jerk about it, I got like much more confident in my programming. So like I, I developed my own patterns for using programming languages that like saved me for myself, if that makes sense. Because I think I think that like once you get used to strong static types, you can like go back to C and like use enums in a pretty disciplined way. You can go into like Python, you can like dispatch in like a pretty disciplined way. You can kind of like build yourself little checks everywhere. Like once you get like used to certain patterns of thinking. And so I actually like primarily, so I don't, I don't really do hands-on development that much anymore, but I was primarily developing in Python for like many, many years after, you know, I, I think that it, it's interesting because most people who have used like a Haskell or an OCaml or even like a Java or C Sharp, they find Python just like very scary. But I think for like the kind of stuff that I was doing, which was like, hey, I wonder if my language could do this, or I wonder like how to kind of like get this information from my own language at runtime and do some pretty crazy stuff with it. Like you want something like that, like just like exposes all of that to you and you don't want all of the safety checks all the time. I know that what you're talking about, like the feeling of like, it's scary, but I, I didn't feel that at the time. Like, it's funny because I started out on like Java C++ and, you know, like didn't feel that static types were like, you know, that big of a deal. And then I went to dynamic and I remember feeling very freed. Like I could just do anything and it, I felt more productive. I remember it, at some point, in that era, I was talking to somebody who was not a programmer. And I, I use the analogy that, you know, static types are like training wheels. Like once you know what you're like, they're useful to help you understand the, the, the you know, like what's going on with these things and how to like categorize them. But, you know, once you get good, you don't need them anymore. And then I went like to a language that had like better static types. And I was like, oh, never mind. This is like way different. But the, the specific thing that sort of changed my mind back was working on large dynamic code bases. Like when I'm like, I need to make a really substantial change to this. And the only help I'm going to get are these tests. That's just like a night and day difference. If you have an actual type checker helping you too, in addition to the tests. Yeah. I think maintenance really benefits from some kind of uh, like very simple structure like types. Well, especially because I mean, a thing that I, I wish got talked about more is like when you're making a big invasive change to a code base, you invalidate a bunch of tests. Like the tests stop helping you because you have to delete them. They don't work anymore. They worked on the old thing that's gone now. Yeah, and you have to write new tests, but you actually didn't know what the original test did sometimes because it wasn't you maintaining that code base. And so it's a real problem. And, and while you're in the process of making the change, the tests for that change don't help you because they don't exist yet. Like, and, and you can write the tests first if you want, but like, that's, you know. You didn't write the code base, so it's very hard. Right, yeah. So it, it's, yeah, like versus my experience with like making big changes in like Elm, Haskell, Rock. I mean, I haven't made any big changes in Rock, but it's the same type system. So <laughs> I know what I'm getting myself into. And it's like, it's, it's just a totally different experience. I think like, this is something I, I just gave a talk about this recently that I don't think is up yet, but it's something that I think that statically typed languages can and should learn from dynamically typed languages that like, this is a really useful workflow to have access to. Yeah, there needs to be this in between. I completely agree. Like the in between is unsolved. Yeah. And, and so like, we're, you know, we're taking a shot at it at, at, with rock, but like, we, so we don't have like gradual types in the sense that like, there's no dynamism. We're not keeping types around at runtime. What we do is basically if there's a type error, we just compile that to a, an expression that says throw a runtime error here. Yeah, I think it's super important. And I think that like, if you look at um, typed PHP or typed JavaScript, that's like none of them actually like have true gradual types in very active use. I think Sorbet maybe has gradual types in a very limited forms form, but most of them are, are just like a straight up 
static type system that does something clever at the boundaries. It's surprising to me that I don't hear about people using the that like workflow option more. It seems like when I talk to people who are adopting going from dynamic types to like a, a static type checker, they just kind of switch over to Java mode where they're like, okay, now we're going to act as if the only way we can run our programs or run our tests is after every all the, the type checking passes. But I think it's like legitimately valuable to not do that, to only sometimes do that. Yeah, no, I, I think the the in between stage is like I, I feel like for me, you like you want the types when you're like when you ship for the first time and thereafter, and sometimes you want to turn them off when you're uh, experimenting with new stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's right. It's it's really situational based on what you're doing, and even within the same code base, like I might on one project within the same code base, want to start with types. And then on the very next one, say, I want to start with the implementation and not write any types. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think the ergonomics of how you go back and forth. I think like, well, people get very upset with me uh, when I say things like this, but Haskell was a, a research language designed to combine a bunch of features from other research languages for researchers to do more research on. It was never intended to be as popular as it is now. It was never intended to be like ergonomically suited for use. It was really like, a, you know, a bunch of people like cobbling together their most like cool, fun, high fashion language concepts to like put all together. And so I think like what people need to do is stuff like what you're doing with Rock, like actually making some of this usable. Like Elm was like, like all, like most of the innovation in Elm was the usability parts, not like the the actual constructs and, and, and usability, I think is, is the big area where all of this stuff needs some work. Yeah. I mean, going all the way back to like, you know, our original conversation about like research and like industry is like, that's kind of what I see my role as and something that I'm just like really enjoying and excited about is sort of like like productionalizing a lot of ideas from from research and um, like obviously like rock is a direct descendant of elm which has takes a lot of ideas from haskell so rock has a lot of you know haskell ideas in it too but it's an intentionally like very small curated subset of those ideas and also like we're taking uh, you know stuff from like other researchers that like i really see industry well industrial pls like rock that are like designed to be used in industry and not designed for research having a very symbiotic relationship ideally with academia where it's like there are certain things that i i was just talking with jose valim from uh, elixir about this because they're talking about adding static types to elixir and one of the things that i i like really appreciate is the fact that i don't have a certain skill set when it comes to like proving things the easiest example i can think of of how valuable this is, is the halting problem like my approach with a lot of things is I'm like, if I know that or I, have, I have enough confidence that like this is going to work out, I'll just throw myself into the implementation and be like, we're going to stumble through it. We're going to figure it out and, and make it work one way or another. But there's some problems where you just actually cannot do that. And like the halting problem is one of them. If you're just like, I'm just going to write a program that will just tell me if this thing terminates or not. It's like, no, you can't, you can't stumble your way through that. <laughs> and so like, there's a skill set that's like really important for being able to say things at a really high level of confidence that like in industry, you, you never necessarily need that. It's like, it's okay. If you have, like, we talk about like how many nines of uptime, right? Like nobody ever expects that you're going to have hundred percent uptime. It's like, it's assumed that like, you're going to have some downtime and that's okay. But there are some problems where like that's it's actually not good enough. If you want to have like a sound type system, for example, like you just sound means something. It's it means that like there's they, things fit together in a certain way. And if you want learn more about certain things, you need things like proofs. And that's just a totally different skill set than than what I've developed in industry. In, in an ideal world, like people in research work out these ideas and they're like, cool, here's an idea I've worked out all the way through, try it out. That is like the best case of that working well. 
But it seems like, you know, you would know a lot better than I would based on your firsthand experience in, in uh, academia as well as in industry. But my perception is that there's a pretty small percentage of academic research that actually seems to end up making it into industry. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing because, I mean, people should be working on things. If people only ever worked on things that they knew were going to be directly applicable to industry, then there would be a lot of like homogeneity to the research and a lot of like, you know, all, like low risk taking. But separately, I, I do like have the sense that a lot of research, and, and I know you've alluded to this in some of your talks, like is just like working on stuff that's like not applicable in industry, not because it was like risky and it didn't work out, but rather because there's a disconnect between what the researcher thinks is going to happen if the ideas work out and, and what people want in industry. I think it's really tricky because I think in programming languages, it's one of those fields where on the one hand, you want to support basic science. In in research, you want to work on like core problems that, you know, like if you look at science, science, a lot of like big breakthroughs happen because people were just tinkering with stuff and um, it happened to be applicable to something. And, and you want a place in society for that to happen. But programming languages is kind of in a weird spot because there are like so many claims of relevance. And so I, I think either people need to be able to be free not to make those claims or those claims should not be made. Or I guess both, <laughs> both things. It's not an either. Both things should be true. Can you think of an example or is that like, you know, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to like. Well, I'll, I'll give like kind of a shape of examples. People will be like, oh, well, like let's assume programmers program this way right now then we can do this. And I, I think that actually even that's fine because maybe programmers will do a thing later in the future where they do that. But I, I think there's there's a lot of paper introductions that are like, if we make this set of assumptions about how the real world works, then this is true. And I think that like the, the assumptions are both like non-basic enough that like it has the feel of like an applied paper. And they're also like incorrect enough that you're like, wait a minute, like what, what's going on here? If, if that makes sense. I know like the there, one example just immediately just jumps into my brain, which is like, and, and this is actually a, a phrase that I've, I always have shied away from talking about the phrase correctness. And like, I know that's like a big common term in like functional programming conversations, but the reason is, is the following. Like, so I started out in industry. I had like an internship, but after that I, I did like a startup and then I did another startup later. This is like the fourth startup now that I'm, I'm working for. So I'm very used to that like mode of development as opposed to, for example, like doing like a big defense contract or something uh, with like a, a lot more, I don't know, ceremony, I guess. But anyway, uh, or like a more like hard science engineering type thing, like, you know, making software for like architecture, you know, bridge building, maybe things are different over there. But when I hear about like correctness, I'm like, okay, so what's the definition of correctness? And they're like, well, does the program correctly adhere to the spec? I'm like, okay, I have a follow-up question. What spec? Like, I've never, <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Spec. <laughs> and, and like, I understand that, you know, back in the day, that was how like software was commonly done back when like the amount of like waiting for your computer to give you an answer was a really time consuming process. And also like, you know, just getting access to a computer was a really big deal. So you would do a ton of planning up front, made, made a lot of sense, but it's the exact opposite today. Like there's like making a spec is almost an anti-pattern. Yeah. Like for the majority of code, you don't do that. I've said this in other situations before. If you are launching a spaceship, if you are building a proton therapy machine and I'm, um, you know, I, I would love it if you're building car software or plane software, but then there are so many examples also of um, you write your spec wrong. So Daniel Jackson is this professor at MIT. He gives this nice series of talks on how um, you know writing a spec has has um, 
you know, given people false confidence or given people the wrong confidence. But here's this one story of this Korean air crash where um, a plane crashed after landing, even though they had proven that, um, you know, the, the brakes, you should be allowed to brake at the, the right time. But they had something in their spec where if your wheels are not touching the ground, then you can't brake. And they proved that was the case, but it had, it had been raining. And so they were hydroplaning. And so they had basically proven a bad case. And and so, yeah, I, I think that even, even in the cases where there is a spec and you've proven correctness with respect to the spec, you have to be really careful what the spec is. And um, I think that there's this, I'm really like, I guess, I don't know if there's a generation of developers who have this like weird relationship to a spec because they were told they're supposed to write one and they don't write one. Maybe they just don't think about it. But I feel like, you know, in school, people are still teaching up and coming software developers about design docs and specs and things like that. And I wonder if we should be teaching something else sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I was in school, but um, my sense is that I don't think that's being taught anymore. Maybe I'm wrong, but Okay. Okay. Maybe. My last semester at CMU, I taught a class where we were um, we were proving C-like programs correct with respect to invariance, which is fine. But I think that I, I think my question there is: Are there other things we could be teaching? Right. But I think if you throw a dart and like hit a random you know software development shop in industry, right? Any any industry, like okay, yes, cars probably different. For all I know, I mean, I've, I've never worked for an auto company, but um, like your your typical like, you know, commercial, probably a web application, maybe not, uh, maybe like maybe a mobile app or something um, there or, or a game um, th- th- like nobody is starting with a spec. And in fact, if you do show up and start writing specs at work, your manager is probably going to have a talking to you. <laughs> like they're going to say like, hey, stop wasting time writing specs. They might or might not be right, but they're going to tell you to do it. And if you don't stop, they're probably going to fire you. That's like how not writing specs we are in industry. Yeah, well, I feel like we're at a very nihilistic point in software development because all the things that we thought were true about software development are kind of not true anymore. Like we don't have order, we don't have categories. And so I feel like we went through a period um, and I I would correlate that with the rise of the dynamically typed languages, which is like nothing matters, why bother, no spec, no anything. And um, we're entering the the age of nuance, I hope. I hope so too. (laughs) I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but um, I I think that, you know, we'll have guidance frameworks for thinking thinking about the world. And I, I think some of it looks like what you're doing with Rock. I, I hope some of it looks like what we're doing at Akita, which is you live in a reality. We'll give you a framework for thinking about it. It's okay that your reality didn't start out clean. Um, not like nothing is clean and perfect. Right. It's it's like the the mental model that I have is is not so much let's try to make things perfect, but rather just like let's try to make things nicer. You know, like let's try to let's build tools that help us out. I, I love. I want to say I heard it from Hillel Wayne, but it's not like types or tests or you know, property-based tests or like, I don't know, formal methods or something like that. It's like anything that'll help, just grab it and use it and get help from it. You know, why, why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a layering. I think something that was really eye-opening for me was um, uh, looking at the difference between academic research and software security and real-world software security. What was really interesting to me was I was doing academic research and software security, and that was where the big like national funding was. And a big premise of it was the assumption that in security, you, you really need a lot of correctness. So that's where like all of the proofs people went to prove programs correct, and that's where people went to model their programs and all the stuff. And the assumption was like surely to like fortify your entire system against issues, you need 
need, you know, very like airtight guarantees. Then when I actually talk to CISOs and security teams, they're like, nope, we have like a time budget of this much. We have a money budget of this much. And we have a goodwill social capital budget of this other amount. And really we're just doing an optimization and we just stop working at like some point. We we know we can't solve all the problems and, and it's really a matter of trade-offs. You know, do we do this at the cost of like this amount of money and goodwill across the company or do we do that? It's like very the opposite of how I had thought about it when I was in academic security because you know we were all like, oh like this is how you prove your entire system correct and and all this stuff. And I think I think software development is really quite similar. People aren't going for the correctness. They have a time budget of so much. They have a money budget of so much. And they have like a team goodwill budget. And they're really just trying to optimize for the trade-offs of delivering something that generally does the right thing. But everyone ships with known bugs. They ship with known like things missing. They ship with known deprecation issues. And it's it's really about trade-offs. Yeah. Absolutely. And even beyond that, like this reminded me of a blog post I read recently about like validating inputs and and, like escaping the outputs that come from them. And I was talking about how like, look, the the threat model, like if somebody wants to break into your company, it's not going to be because they, you know, found some unescaped HTML somewhere and like use that to, you know, do something malicious. Like if they want to break into your company, they're going to go on LinkedIn, they're going to find who works on your infrastructure. They're going to make a fake profile with an attractive photo and send you a DM saying, hey, I'm new to programming. I want some mentorship. Can you help me out? Try. Does this code I wrote look good? And it it's a JavaScript program that looks like a beginner wrote it. And it's got an NPM dependency, which has another NPM dependency, which pones your machine. That's how they're going to get into your system. <laughs> Here's a theory I have, which is that because so this is based on a, a quote I, I heard once from a professor named Jerry Sussman at MIT. He wrote uh, Structure yes. and Interpretation of is, is Computer Programs. Uh, yeah, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. yeah, he's awesome. He like I, I once went to a lecture by him where he said people become programmers because they like playing God. And I feel like for many decades, we we're like, ah, we couldn't have nice things in the real world. But, you know, computer programs can be exactly what we want them to be. And so like you would never... Like, like you would like very quickly accept that your house can't have like all these nice things or you can't drive like a Porsche that's kept like brand new every day or I don't know, like I've accepted it. Maybe other people are out there still chasing that. But I don't think people have accepted the same thing about their software because like software came from our heads. So why can't it be nice? And I feel like, you know, (laughs) that led to the, (laughs) the like, the phases of, of software that um, I just mentioned. And I, I think that this is really the, the era where like hopefully people come to terms with like what it looks like to have some nice things, but not others in, in software. That's so interesting. I, so first of all, I think that's dead on. But second of all, I, you know, I, it never occurred to me to think about software as a place to go to make things really nice and neat and orderly. Because for me, the appeal of software has always been the opposite, which is that it's like a big sandbox where I can play and do whatever I want And there's like no consequences to like messing around and experimenting with things and trying stuff out because I can always save and go back to a previous version and, you know, open up my old file or whatever. And and like the program is something that I can just like tinker with endlessly and I can always get back to a previous state at any point if I want to. And, you know, it's... uh, there's like low cost to, to risk taking and experimentation. Of course, once it gets in production, that's a different story. But it's like my, um, you know, unpleasant like reality, like wake up moment was actually that like, it's not so much that I can't make it neat and tidy and perfect because I wasn't looking for that in the first place, but rather that, oh, there actually are responsibilities that come with this, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's like the thread is like, well, like, 
you can't make it neat and tidy and perfect if you can't deliver. You have a responsibility to keep delivering. Yeah, I, I guess to, like you know, whichever side you're coming from, the like I want to make something that's neat and perfect, or I want to you know play around in my sandbox. Either way, you end up you know with a wake up call at some point. Of <laughs> like, it's not. It's yeah, not like, just that. like software is a real thing. People live in it. They live on it. It affects real people. It's running stuff. And like anything that runs stuff in the real world can't just be what you want it to be. Very true. Wow. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. Um, anything else we should make sure to, to talk about? I mean, I think this is this was really fun and great. Like, I feel like we've got some good stuff here. Maybe we should leave it at that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Gene, uh, thank you so much for coming on the, the program. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to, you know, join me again and, and talk about more programming stuff, happy to have you anytime. Yeah, this was, this was super fun. I feel like some of the, a lot of these things, I'm like, well, I thought them before, but I've never said them out yeah. loud. <laughs> That's why it's great to have conversations. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, talking. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, best of luck with Akita. Uh, looking forward to seeing what comes next. Well, cool. and yeah, best of luck with Rock. I think that in the era of um, nuance, I think this is really what the world needs. Nice. Mm-hmm.